And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, November 3rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how federal procurement can keep artificial intelligence in its swim lane. Plus, the Postal Service has changed more than you might think in the last 20 years. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Homeland Security has a new plan to evaluate the cybersecurity of companies it does business with before making contract awards. If you think the DHS plan looks like the Pentagon's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, well, think again. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the details. And so, Justin, what exactly is the DHS plan here for making sure cyber safety of its contractors? Yeah, DHS will use a cybersecurity readiness factor as part of its pre-award evaluations. It put out this plan in a November 1st notice on SAM.gov if you want to read it for yourself. But essentially, it says that the department needs to ensure effective and appropriate cybersecurity measures are in place by vendors. And this factor will allow DHS to evaluate companies' cybersecurity posture before awards for applicable contracts. So it won't necessarily apply to all contracts. DHS vendors for a long time now have had to follow the National Institute of Standards and Technology cybersecurity controls for protecting sensitive government data. But DHS and other agencies have really never checked whether they're actually doing that. So this is DHS's plan for doing just that. Kenneth Bible is DHS's chief information security officer. He spoke about the plan. It'll start helping us to go look at this in advance of a contract award. We're trying to take steps that we can do now. Let's just start. And in my mind, that's what starts to build the public's confidence. If they can just see the government moving out to do the things that we're asking them to do, and we're starting to hold ourselves to the same standards, I think that goes a long ways. And are we going to hit the mark every time? Probably not. But the point is that if we don't start, then we're never going to get there. Unlike CMMC, which sort of started and never quite gets out of first gear, I guess. Will this be something that the suppliers attest to? I mean, they don't have third-party verifiers and all of this the way CMMC is planning. That's exactly right. DHS will essentially send companies a security questionnaire that DHS will then take back and assign cybersecurity readiness ratings Uh, ranging from across three broad categories, a high likelihood of cyber readiness, just a likelihood of cyber readiness, or a low likelihood of cyber readiness. And the metrics, uh, again, will be tailored to individual solicitations, so it won't be like this across-the-board sort of requirement for all DHS contracts. But importantly here, a company's cybersecurity rating could either help or hurt their bid when it is used in a solicitation. The DHS's plan says they will use the cybersecurity readiness factor as a best value trade-off in award decisions. So this could come down to whether or not you have good cybersecurity in place if you want to win a contract. I guess if you're buying, if they are buying a machine like a spectrometer or something that's online to see that when they swab something at an airport and it transmits that information to their central database, that would have to be cyber secure, but maybe they would have a different standard for the people selling the swab tips. Yeah, exactly. It seems like it's going to be on a case-by-case sort of a risk-based uh, basis here. And and again, you know, DHS wants to make sure that these contractors who are making those more sensitive 
uh, pieces of equipment are protecting that data on their networks. It sounds as if DHS deliberately is not going down the same path as the DOD is with its CMMC program. And they just, why? Do they say why? Yeah, in a couple of words, uh, small businesses. Uh, DHS for a couple of years now has been looking to improve contractor cybersecurity, similar to how DOD has been looking to ensure contractor cybersecurity. But DHS works with a lot of small businesses, and they're concerned that these third-party verifications could muddle that up. Here's Ken Bible again, DHS's CISO. And what we had found was that some of the other techniques that were being approached, like the way that DOD was working with their cybersecurity maturity model certification, kind of the third-party assessment approach, wouldn't really work with our industry base of DHS. We have uh, the great pleasure, I think, of having a tremendous percentage, uh, I believe the last number I heard is like $6 billion a year of small business prime contracts for DHS, which is a point of pride for the department and justifiably for our procurement shop. Yeah, and it's getting harder and harder to find small business vendors that base of companies is shrinking, and so the government is doing more and more business with a smaller population of them. So I guess maybe this is an approach that won't kick more of them out of the market by having that attestation that they have that factor that's wanted. And by the way, what is the latest on the CMMC program? Yeah, it is inching along. The Pentagon is uh, close to making the CMMC requirements a reality, relatively close compared to how long this has taken. They submitted a rulemaking, DOD submitted a rulemaking package to the White House earlier this year in the summer. And everyone who's watching the program expects that that rulemaking will be finalized and released for public comment by the end of the calendar year here. Now, once that comes out, there will be a public comment period, most likely, and then DOD will have to sort through all of those comments before finalizing the requirements. And so everyone watching the CMMC program expects that the requirements won't go into effect until late 2024 at the earliest. Right. It keeps getting pushed back to another year and another year. It's kind of like zero trust. The Pentagon will get there in 2026, you know, the way they're going. Now, DHS's Bible said that they were just going to go ahead and do this because they don't want to wait. So what are the next steps? Yeah, Bible actually said that DHS doesn't have to do any rulemaking to start using these security questionnaires and evaluation factors in procurements. Uh, the notice that DHS put out uh, doesn't state exactly when the new factor will go into effect, but DHS is seeking feedback on its plans by November 17th. So notionally, DHS could start using this in, in solicitations after that date, uh, but that kind of remains to be seen here. So it's something we'll have to watch going forward. Well, the question, I guess, will come in individual awards, whether someone is at the mid-level instead of the higher level with their factor, could they amend their posture with putting in controls or something, raise their factor, and then be competitive or you just be knocked out because you're the second factor and not the first factor. I think that's going to be a protest situation, possibly. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of questions here about how these evaluation factors are going to be implemented and whether companies will be able to protest certain things. Obviously, DHS acquisition officials will have to probably make these expectations clear up front in solicitations. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Postal Service has changed more than you think in the last 20 years. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. As one of the oldest federal services, the Postal Service has changed constantly over the centuries. In fact, a lot has happened just in the 21st century. The USPS Office of Inspector General has created an online history of the 21st century of the USPS, starting with the anthrax mailings shortly after 9-11. For details, we turn to the research manager in the OIG's Strategic Insights Solutions Center, John Althan. Mr. Althan, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Excited to be here. And why did you do this in the first place? What was the purpose in the OIG of all places, creating kind of a timeline of the latter-day postal service? Yeah, well, I work with a small research team here at the USPS Office of Inspector General that writes white papers, usually around 20 pages, and they look into broad issues impacting the Postal Service, things like national economic trends or public policy discussions around the Postal Service. And in the case of this paper, we looked at the history of USPS in the 21st century. But we recognize that people are busy, and not everyone is a complete postal nerd with time to read a long research paper. But at the same time, people are interested in the Postal Service. So we've been looking for ways to make our research more engaging for stakeholders. And something recently released for our paper on the history of the USPS was a digital story, sort of giving people an interactive experience. It's much shorter than a white paper, but it pairs sort of the key highlights with relevant pictures and movement on the screen to sort of give the reader a journey through the research year by year of the 21st century. And hopefully uh, folks find it a more engaging way to engage with our research. Now, was the beginning of the 21st century an arbitrary standpoint? I mean, what is significant about these last 22, 23 years? Lord knows a lot's happened, for sure. So starting around 2000, the Postal Service really started to experience some of the challenges that would create financial challenges for up to today. So the obvious one that uh, your listeners would probably be aware of is digital diversion, the diversion of traditional ways of correspondence or advertising onto a digital platform. But also there were some other key events. There was postal reform in 2006 that set up some financial obligations and liabilities for the Postal Service that had a a long-term impact, as well as the Great Recession. So there's a lot of things in that first decade of the 21st century that we're still feeling today and we're still talking about today. Yeah, so that reform caused them to be forced to pre-fund retirement benefits, and so that took a lot of money out of a current year's cash flow and made it financially difficult for the Postal Service. That eventually got changed, but it took a long time. Yeah, it didn't change until 2022, and that occurred right around 2007, same time of the Great Recession. So you see right after that, in 2009, for instance, there's a 25 billion piece fall in mail volume, which is the largest annual drop. So the Postal Service has been dealing with that since trying to um, find ways to mitigate those challenges. Right. The peak, the story says, of mail volume was in 2006. I didn't realize it was that late. Yeah, yeah. And even up till then, despite the rise of the uh, Internet early in that period, advertising mail volumes were still growing up till then. So there was still some hope on the horizon. So people stopped sending letters and putting stamps on them and sending to people the the classic first class, then the uh, advertising direct mail kind of fell down. So what is the status of mail volume now? What does the story say about that? Well, first class mail volume is still declining. Advertising mail has been more resilient over the years in the United States, but you know, recently it had some challenges as well. But at the same time, as you know, e-commerce has risen, so postal services package business has increased as well. So there's really been a shift in the mail mix over the last couple decades. 
Yes. One of the things the story highlights is the landmark signature with the air carrier services to combine with postal service. And that's kind of the Amazon era approach, I guess you might say. Yeah, early on in the 21st century, they made some deals with air carriers. And then also related to e-commerce, they not so much related to the air carriers, but they started doing last mile deliveries partnerships with folks like Amazon, as well as Sunday deliveries. So they made some innovations there to try to accommodate e-commerce. We're speaking with John Alfin. He's the research manager for the Research Insights Solutions Center at the USPS Office of Inspector General. And there were some pretty calamitous events, as I remember, right after 9-11 in the aftermath seemed connected at the time that these anthrax mailings went to Capitol Hill and so on. And how did that affect USPS besides in the immediate tracing of where those came from? Yeah. So the anthrax mailings, I mean, it was not only a threat to postal employees, a couple of postal employees tragically died because of the anthrax mailings, but it also created an operational challenge. You know, that really kicked in new processes and equipments that the Postal Service had to think about and invest in to mitigate terrorist threats. Um, Not just anthrax, but you've seen pipe bombs in recent decades that have been sent through the mail, and the Postal Service has had to sort of adapt with this new national security threat. By the way, how many postmasters general have there been in this century? There's been four PMGs in the 21st century. I think it's technically five. One went up to 2001, so technically five PMGs in the 21st century, uh, and most recently it's Louis DeJoy. And he's the first kind of outsider in a long time. Most of them have come up through the ranks. Yeah, I think in in 40 years or so, there's been mostly postmasters that have come up through the ranks. And Louis DeJoy is the first that really came from outside the organization. And so it's shaken things up a bit as far as his approach and his outlook. Sure. And so given this history that you've created, this visual history, who do you think should read it? I mean, who is it intended for? Yeah, so our primary stakeholders that we send our work to are Postal Service Management, the Board of Governors, and Congress. But because our research group often looks at these broad issues, we have a variety of stakeholders, you know, industry stakeholders, mailers, the labor unions, and other other folks that work in the industry. But also with a paper like this that looks at sort of the history of the 21st century, you know, I think it could be of interest to the general public because it's ultimately who the Postal Service serves. And uh, they obviously have a great interest in the evolution of the Postal Service. That's interesting that the point you bring up about the Postal Service's role in the history of the nation itself. You know, every so often people will release a trove of letters, you know, written during World War II or something or some early era. Do you ever worry that because people don't write letters anymore that a lot of history could just not exist for the general public? You know, maybe you don't release those letters till after the parties are deceased because of privacy. But there's a piece of American history at the personal level that just won't exist anymore because of the lack of letters. Yeah, that is an interesting question. I mean, we've done research in the past showing that people still put sort of an emotional connection to letter writing itself. And I think you see that coming up in a few months here around the holidays and and Christmas, where people still send holiday cards and it, it means more. So I think there is some sort of stronger attachment with a physical medium, perhaps, that might be an enduring sort of value of the mail stream going forward. Yeah. All right. So from the OIG standpoint, you've made millions of recommendations on so many fronts that uh, for yeah. postal operations. Where would the OIG like to see the Postal Service go in the next quarter century or next 20 years, let's say? Yeah, well, uh, that's out of scope for this paper. I, mean, yeah, I was going to say, it's above your pay grade years. here, right? So, so I can't speak to sort of the specifics on current strategic decisions. Um, but I think, of course, we'd all love to see sort of a healthy and thriving postal system. In the past, the OIG has talked a lot about technological innovation or trying new types of partnerships. So I think that's something we've spoken to in the past as 
sort of a potential opportunity. Um, and of course, the OIG will continue working to uh, maintain the integrity and accountability of the postal system. Will you urge them to do a mailing to every household with the URL of this uh, story so that people can see it for themselves? If they want to get it out there, I wouldn't discourage it. So. <laughs> John Alton is the research manager for the Research Insights Solutions Center at the USPS Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the History Project itself at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, GSA's Technology Transformation Service wants to lower cost and risk. But first, how federal procurement can keep artificial intelligence in its swim lane. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Lots of people are worried about the effects of artificial intelligence. Misused, it can cause harm. But my next guest says federal contracts can provide a line of defense against improper use of AI. Just before release of the White House's guidance on AI, I spoke with University of Pennsylvania law professor and federal regulation expert, Kerry Connellisi. Contracts can include provisions to uh, address transparency problems, which is a big, big concern about the use of AI, requiring contractors to disclose information about how these tools are designed and structured. Contracts can also address other kinds of substantive concerns about AI in terms of bias, for example, and safety. And they can also impose requirements for procedures for auditing and validation. So we often are thinking in Washington these days about the need for legislation on AI and regulation on AI. And that may be needed, but it's going to be some time coming. Contracts can be and are being written every day, and they can be written in a way to require that contractors uh, use AI tools in a responsible manner. And as you point out, there is no law or much regulation, but there is some case history, not at the federal level. You cite a case that happened in Houston with public school teachers who found that an algorithm amounted to a black box and a judge agreed with them. Tell us about that case and what it says sure, about the sure. use of AI. Yeah, it was relatively unsophisticated algorithm by the standards of what we have today. But back several years ago, the school teachers in the city of Houston uh, took the school district to court because the school district had been applying a performance algorithm that was being used to evaluate teachers for pay and continued employment. The algorithm had been developed and was run by a private contractor who claimed trade secret protection over the algorithm. And the teachers said, wait a minute, we're public employees, school district, you're a public entity. We have constitutional due process rights to some degree of transparency and fairness in how we are being evaluated. And we can't even know what that is. And the court agreed with them. And it seemed to me, uh, in retrospect, an obvious fix for that would have been to have the school district, during the contracting process, require the vendor to 
provide adequate information. And this doesn't mean turning over everything, but due process considerations would require a minimal amount of information about how the algorithm was structured, what it was designed to optimize for, what were the sources of data, how is it tested, validated. In fact, a lot of private companies right now are on their own disclosing that kind of information in what are called model cards or system cards. And that suggests that you can actually expect companies to release adequate information about how their algorithms are working without running afoul of legitimate concerns about confidential business information. Well, right. And even in the intellectual property space, which is not our topic today, you have to tell something about what it is before you can get a patent on something. So even revealing those trade secrets doesn't give anyone the right to copy them. It just means that you're transparent about it. Fair to say? That's right. This is an avoidable nested opacity problem, as I call it. Uh, we're concerned legitimately about the opacity of AI tools. Can we really understand why they're generating the results that they are generating? But then there's this second layer of opacity that can be created when private vendors are developing these tools if they won't share information about them. There is information that can be disclosed and should be disclosed, and it's a no-brainer that today, as uh, government entities are contracting for digital services and AI tools, that they are careful about ensuring that the contractual language will provide a basis for the government entity to demand and, and expect the disclosure of some basic information that the public deserves to know about how these tools are being designed and used. We are speaking with Kerry Connellisi. He's a law professor and director of the Penn Program on Regulation, all this at the University of Pennsylvania. And I found it interesting you call procurement and AI a two-way relationship because not only can contracts ensure that this visibility and transparency is available to the contracting entity, but there are ways that AI can transparently help the procurement process itself. Tell us more about that. That's right. There's an emerging area of procure tech, and tools are being developed that use AI-based algorithms to parse contract proposals and flag issues, maybe where the proposals are deficient. Government agencies are experimenting with chatbots that can provide questions and answer services for understanding regulatory requirements for procurement. Tools can be developed using AI to help government agencies assess proposals for various risks or possible delays and how those proposals are evaluated. Accepted contracts, uh, AI tools can be used in that context for auditing, contractual performance, managing supply chains. So there's a lot of potential for using AI within the procurement process at the same time that the procurement process itself can be used as a means for governing governmental use of AI. So in the first situation, it would be incumbent upon the contractor to provide this window into how its algorithm works. But in the second case, it's the government that would have to provide the transparency. Otherwise, every time they use the algorithm, there'd be a protest from everyone who didn't get the contract. 
That's right. And it may be sort of a complex loop here because the government may be using a private contractor to design and develop a procure tech tool that it's used to assess procurement bids and would need to make sure that it has adequate information, you know, and access to that information to uh, withstand those contests to uh, denial of awards that would certainly be expected. But there's nothing, I think, inherent in the use of AI tools that should keep government agencies from going forward and using them in the procurement context or in many other contexts, as long as they're careful to ensure that there will be adequate information about how these tools are designed, what they're aiming for, what data they're relying upon and been trained on, and how they have been validated and shown to work. I like to say that in some ways, these tools can be analogized to the use of a thermometer or any other kind of machine or mechanical instrument. Government agencies are not precluded from relying upon those tools to uh, make determinations that affect private interests, whether it's in the procurement context or, or any other context, you just have to make sure that those tools are validated ones and they're working properly. They've been designed for the proper purpose. And uh, if we think about AI in those terms and ensure that there's adequate disclosure about the responsible assurance that these machines, if you will, have been uh, well validated. Uh, government entities, I think, can safely rely upon them, but you know they have to make sure they can disclose the information to demonstrate that. And what form does that disclosure take? As a final question, a lot of agencies are pursuing software bills of material for cybersecurity and supply chain purposes and I'm making an analogy here, a uh, software bill of materials can be an incomprehensibly long digital document. And so you get it, great, what do I do with it now? What are some of the elements that might be on these model cards or system cards such that people could decipher what it is that the vendor is showing about their own algorithm? Well, I think definitely we would want to see what the mathematical objective is that the algorithm has been designed to optimize for. That's critical. And that's going to be human determined. What is it supposed to be doing? <laughs> and then where is it getting its data that's training the algorithm? That's important. And what measures are the contractors for the agencies using to audit and ensure the accuracy, first and foremost, that these data and the model design is actually achieving its objective. And then I think there's a range of reasonable side effects that would be worth disclosing as well. Has it been audited for bias, uh, for example, uh, would be among those. And that's standard in what seems to be an emerging practice among the mainly big tech firms in their model and system cards. And I think, you know, over time, we're going to develop, I think, a more systematic understanding of what proper disclosure entails. And it's also going to be something that may well vary from use case to use case. But I think, roughly speaking, objectives, data, validation, auditing. And do I detect a preference for a market-driven approach rather than a regulatory or legal approach to keeping AI in its swim lane? Well, I think in many respects, this is kind of an all-hands-on-deck 
governance approach that we're going to need. I don't think that one can say across the board there should be a preference for one set of tools or another. I think there are aspects of AI and uses of AI that will demand legislative and and regulatory responses. But even those regulatory responses will probably need to be fairly flexible and adaptable because AI, we might talk about it as a singular technology, but it's actually many, many different technologies. And once you recognize that, that's also an advantage of thinking about procurement as a governance tool. Procurement, as I've said, could be something that's used today. We don't have to wait for legislative or regulatory action. It's also something that can be customized to the specific use case at issue. And that's going to be, I think, very important to any kind of governance approach uh, to uh, AI. So you can call that market-driven. I might call it sort of customization or a holistic approach to AI. I also think, by the way, that there's absolutely a need for government vigilance. So even in the procurement contracting context, no government agency should be lulled into thinking that we've put these terms in the contract and we've done all that we need to do now to govern the use of AI under this contract. AI is a dynamic technology as data upon which it's trained vary its results may vary. The models may need to be updated over time. And as a result, any contracts for AI themselves may need to be updated or at least have provisions that allow for an ongoing flow of information about how they're being used. So ongoing vigilance is really, really important in AI governance today. Kerry Connellisi is a law professor and director of the Penn Program on Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how GSA's Technology Transformation Service wants to lower cost and risk. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Technology Transformation Service in the General Services Administration has been using $150 million American Rescue Plan dollars to modernize citizen-facing services. Ann Lewis, the new director of the service, tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller about a project at housing and urban development to help homeowners find local housing counselors. Our technical experts embedded with this team and helped them improve the site's accuracy and speed. And we also broadened the effort to include related programs like mortgage relief. As a result, people are using the new self-help tools to more easily access information and get services quicker, and call center volumes for that tool is down by 90%. So this is an example where getting the right tech skills into the right place with taking a pragmatic approach really helps to deliver better outcomes for the public. And we also saw a spike in demand during the pandemic for cross-agency services that needed to go digital first. As you know, FedRAMP provides a cost-effective, risk-based approach to help government make better use of cloud services. As agencies try to improve digital benefit systems, they need more cloud service providers of all kinds. And so during the pandemic, we saw authorization requests for providers surge. 
So we used some American Rescue Plan funds to help clear the backlog of FedRAMP authorization requests for both new and existing cloud offerings. And we still have more work to do to modernize FedRAMP, which, as you'll note, was recently written into law. And we're going to use some American Rescue Plan funds as seed money to do that, too, so that we can be ready for increased demand in the future. I also have some examples of projects that we're working on in the TTS portfolio, aside from American Rescue Plan funding, that are funded from a variety of different services, as well as fee-for-service. The Centers of Excellence are working on some exciting public-private partnerships to figure out the best ways to bring the best ideas from artificial intelligence, including generative AI, and the use of large language models into government. So they've recently put together an event uh, called the Applied AI Challenge that's focusing on large language models. And we think public-private partnerships like this are an exciting and critical way to bring the best ideas into government. We also have a project that we're working on in coordination with the United States Digital Service and the IRS to build a new direct file tax product. The 18F Consulting Organization is also using user research to try and improve weather.gov. And many TTS products and programs and teams will be working together on projects related to the 21st Century IDEA Act, which is a great framework for helping government agencies understand the best and most pragmatic ways to modernize. So just a lot of really exciting stuff going on. The other side, of the, along with the Applied AI Challenges, is we brought up FedRAMP, so let's go down that path a little bit. One of the things about FedRAMP is it's people have a love-hate relationship with it, right? They love, uh, to, they love the idea around it. They love some of the, the benefits it brings, but they also have uh, some concerns about the cost and the time and the surge capabilities that GSA brings to it. So what are some of those ideas you have and what some of the ways you are trying to seed to improve FedRAMP? There's a lot of things that FedRAMP has done over the years, but we're looking forward now. What are some of those things uh, TTS is doing? We see the opportunity and the challenges with FedRAMP. And so we're, we're building up the team. We're making the, we're doing some hiring to make the team larger and bring more skill sets into the team. And also we're investing in automation to improve the authorization and continuous monitoring processes. We think bringing in the right tools and building out the team will help us deeply understand all of those processes and figure out the right ways to scale them so that we can build the right cloud service provider marketplace that truly serves the federal government's needs. And I imagine no matter where you go and you hear folks in industry or government, there's there's that kind of, we'll call it frustration with FedRAMP. I imagine you hear that quite a bit and, and that's kind of pushing TTS. So, okay, how, how can we continue to improve this? Yeah, I, and so whenever a program gets to what in the tech world we would call product market fit. We build something that is actually useful and then this, the use cases start to scale up. Then we see scaling and growth challenges that we are listening to our stakeholders about taking seriously and making plans to address. We will be scaling up the FedRAMP program and we hope to make it more effective for both cloud service providers, assessors, and uh, agencies that use the program. As I said, it's definitely one of those things that people see the, the value in, uh, I think they, generally speaking, vendors and others always want more, more, more. So you, you put, put GSA and others in a, in a little bit of a tough spot. So hopefully they can understand that. Oh, not what? a tough spot. It's actually a big opportunity. And I think we're facing this kind of opportunity across all of our programs. And so what I really want to f- TTS to focus on across the board as the new TTS director is operational excellence. Uh, we need to really understand what our customers need. We need tight feedback loops with customers of all kinds. We need our agency partners to the table, and we need to be investing in the right kinds of scaling and automation activities across the board. So that's exactly what we're going to do for FedRAMP. Expand that idea out of operational excellence beyond just FedRAMP, because I'm sure that applies to everything TTS does. 
what are some of those ideas you have as you look forward into 2024 and beyond? So I think we need to invest in operational excellence at all levels. Part of this is building our cultures of management and our standards around leadership and program management. We want to make sure that managers have the support they need. Program leaders are using the right kinds of planning tools and doing the right kinds of stakeholder management tactics that fit their projects. And ultimately, when we have a tight feedback loop between what users need and what the experience of our product is and also how we're prioritizing our roadmap, then we can iteratively improve over time. We're also investing in program management. So we're building our compliance and governance capacity. We're identifying where we need to improve governance processes. I'm personally investing in cultivating leaders in TTS. I think that's absolutely important at this stage in TTS's growth. And organizationally, we're doing a lot of organizational development activities to de-silo teams, connect up expertise, create internal and external economies of scale when we're able, and make sure that all of the best practices that we learn about are applied internally as well as externally. Ultimately, to me, TTS is about people, products, and platforms. And by people, I mean discovery, implementation, and consulting work to catalyze agency progress. When agencies need expertise to help define, plan, and execute a vision for digital services, we partner with the agency while also them help, also helping them understand how to build capacity. By products, we mean shared infrastructure and tooling that helps agencies deliver faster and with lower risk and lower cost. So as we're all aware, agencies and programs are doing a lot of work in parallel, and sometimes that work is duplicative. Sometimes programs are paying vendors to build the same things over and over and over again. And since TTS can see across agency boundaries, we can see where there's duplicative work happening, and we can provide building blocks and tooling that's commonly needed in the development and delivery of government digital services. One of my favorite examples of this is the U.S. web design system. In today's era, if you need to build a new website, you start with something called a design system that gives you a scaffold for how all of the best practices around accessibility, interoperability, form, styling, et cetera, how those are all put together as a scaffold for future web development. If you start with the U.S. web design system, then we do a lot of that work for you so the agencies don't have to do it over and over again. And when more agencies adopt the U.S. web design system, they begin to share a common look and feel and common set of modern best practices. Today, over a billion page views a month come from websites that use the U.S. web design system. And finally, platforms. These are interagency experiences that create cohesion and economies of scale across agency boundaries. So when the public needs to interact with potentially multiple agencies around the same or similar need, we can see across those agency boundaries, help understand the user experience end to end, and we can help agencies build and operate government-wide platforms that enable and centralize those interactions, ultimately reducing barriers for access to, for users. Anne Lewis, Director of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. When federal agencies either don't have the right skills on staff or don't have enough employees in the first place, they've got a skills gap. Government-wide skills gap includes cybersecurity, acquisition, and human resources. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman reports how certain senior leaders are focused on narrowing those gaps. Chief learning officers or CLOs don't often get the spotlight as they try to ensure an agency's workforce has the skills it needs. But across government, CLOs are taking on some of the challenging long-term work to try to close skills gaps. That all comes as skills gaps in the federal workforce remain a significant barrier to reaching better end results in agencies' work. 
Earlier this year, the Government Accountability Office reported that more than half of the government's biggest problem areas stem directly from mission-critical skills gaps. GAO Comptroller General Gene Dodaro warned Congress about exactly this issue. Across the federal government, I'm very concerned about the federal workforce. Less than 7% are under uh, 30. This is a real problem for the federal government. There are 22 areas of the 37 on the high-risk list because of critical uh, skill gaps and shortages. Government-wide in the cybersecurity area, human capital management, acquisition management. So this is a real problem. But chief learning officers are trying to take on some of that work. Generally, this senior-level position is tasked with helping agencies first identify their biggest skills gaps. Then they create what's called a talent development strategy to try to add in those skills for the workforce. They put together training opportunities and programs for current employees. And they look particularly at mission-critical skills areas such as data analytics, IT, and cybersecurity. But it's not just about what skills are needed right now. It's equally important to look at what lies ahead. Joellen Jarrett, Chief Learning Officer at the Small Business Administration, says there's one area she's been watching particularly closely. But the interest is not yet where it quite needs to be. The AI courses do get attention, but in pockets. It depends on, on what organization we're talking about. So that's not yet clearly across the board. A new executive order on AI, which President Joe Biden signed this week, in part called for more federal workforce training in AI. But in the more near term, chief learning officers are already thinking internally about where AI-related training programs can be most useful. For example, AI skills can be helpful in human resources departments. At the Department of Veterans Affairs, AI is a field that Chief Human Capital Officer, or Chico, Tracy Therrett, is focused on. But that doesn't make it easy. I, I don't even know where to start with generative AI uh, because that is becoming part of our vocabulary as well and helping people to understand how when you have to write that job announcement, it may not be taking a template and working in Word. <laughs> it may be a chat uh, with a few queries and a few keywords and all of a sudden it's produced and you just need to make sure that it is doing and meeting your needs and expectations. And at the Office of Personnel Management, Chico Carmen Garcia says her agency's HR team is also leaning into AI. We are looking at, for example, position descriptions uh, and already made a lot of headway with that and looking at our classification standards and uploading that and seeing how we can put in you know, major duties into you know, our, our AI sandbox and seeing what kind of position descriptions can be uh, developed out of that. And aside from some growth in AI, Chief Learning Officer Jared at the Small Business Administration says courses that do get a ton of attention are in data analytics. A lot of the data courses are, are really high demand right now. And again, I think it's because we're, we're driving harder at making sure that we're doing a good job of telling our stories. And the best way to tell the story is through your data. And so having a workforce that understands what data to use, how to capture it, uh, how to validate it, how to present it is important. Many federal workforce experts say data analytics should not be limited only to jobs with the word data in their title. Developing data skills can be highly beneficial for the HR workforce as well, according to VA Chico Tracy Therrett. The data workforce is not just defined as the occupational series who do data analysis. It is being an HR person who understands data and can do some data visualization. I know um, OPM has created some wonderful dashboards around time to hire, around attrition, around DEIA. 
it is hard to do HR work today if you don't understand that data, if you don't know how to visualize that data, and if you don't understand how to explain that data to hiring managers, um, to applicants for employment, to employees within your organization. So making sure that in all of our curriculum, both for new hires and as folks progress into the higher grade levels, that they're getting training in those skills that we know that they will need in the future. And those data skills are absolutely essential for OPM's HR workforce as well, according to Chico Garcia. We want to be able to leverage the data, but if we simply give the data to, say, our hiring managers from an HR perspective, and we're not equipping them on how to use that data and having that data literacy, it's it, it could actually be detrimental in some aspects, right? So we have to be very careful about how we are strategic, but generally with HR moving from being reactive to being strategic. And how are we going to help with those folks? It is through career pathing. It is to making sure that we are developing these internal training programs to address that. And whether it's developing training programs in AI, data, or any other key workforce skill, the work of chief learning officers doesn't end there. Since the position is not standardized across government, its responsibilities are highly flexible. In addition to strategic talent development, CLOs can also be in charge of performance management, awards and recognition, engagement, telework and remote work, and so much more. Because of that flexibility, CLOs work closely with Chicos and other workforce leaders across government. We know that we can't operate in a vacuum. And so being aware of what's going on, whether it's in our lane or not. So the term stay in your lane doesn't really apply. I don't think if you if you want to be successful in really driving change and promoting mission accomplishment in the federal government, it's important that we are aware of all of the initiatives afoot and uh, where learning and development or change management or organization development might play a part in those initiatives. And so having a good relationship with our chief human capital officers and uh, understanding what's going on at the chief human capital officer council level is important. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.